0: Thanks for listening to this sermon podcast for Real Life Church Pullman. We exist to help people know and become like Jesus. We're kicking off a new series today. Uh, we, we finished up the James series and now we're going to be looking at uh, bucket list Christianity. Uh, and the idea behind that, if you don't know the, the phrase bucket list, it's the idea of a list of things that you want to do before you... Kick the bucket. Thank you. There you go. Kick the bucket. There you go. Uh, I had first service. They all, a bunch of people just went die, and I was like, whoa. <laughs> I was like, let's break it down a notch. Um, but yeah, so it's uh, bucket list Christianity, and the idea for that is okay. What are some Christian things, things with our walk with God that we want to have done, we should do before we go meet our Father in heaven, and so. Uh, what, are, what are the things that we are passionate about that we think are important to your relationship with God? Not vital, not necessary, just important. Uh, and so uh, we, we came up with a list. There's five of them. And uh, what's cool about this is there's going to be five different speakers, and I get to kick it off. Uh, but we all get to pick something that we're passionate about, that we feel strongly about, that everyone should do at some point. Uh, in their walk with God. And so it's kind of, it's going to be a cool series for you to get to not just hear something awesome that you should do and inspire you, but also get to hear from different people about what they're passionate about. For me, um, my name, I'm Corbin. Uh, I'm the youth pastor here and I study the Bible. That's my, one of my things. I, I went to school at Hope International University in Southern California and I got a degree in biblical studies. So I'm pretty passionate about The Bible. Uh, That wasn't always the case, but as time went on, I became more and more passionate about it. I actually didn't even choose biblical studies. Someone, I kind of just went with the flow and people were like, you should do this. And I was like, all right, sure. Uh, So, but I grew in my love for it. I grew in my appreciation for it. And I see how God guided me to that. And I'm really grateful. So let's talk about this. First of all, the Bible in Latin Biblia, it means library. So it's just, that's what it means. Library. Uh, It was written in three different languages, mostly Hebrew and Greek, but there's a couple of books that were written in Aramaic. Uh, It spanned across three different continents and over 1,500 years. It was written by over 40 different authors, and they come from different cultures, environments, times, um, and from different uh, occupations. There's kings, kings. Uh, there's fishermen and farmers, homeless prophets, musicians, pastors, a tent maker, a shepherd, a scribe, a doctor, and a tax collector. And like four of those are just David. Thank you for laughing. First service missed them. Why over there? I appreciate it. All right. Uh, it's comprised of songs. Uh, there's war stories and fables, poems, historical records, laws, wisdom. Moral philosophy, theology, dreams, apocalyptic literature, even satire. Uh, it covers creation, destruction, recreation, angelic beings, miraculous stories, love, hate, betrayal, suffering, hope, perseverance, community, vice, instruction, education, redemption, warning, and, and so much more. But most of all, it talks about an all-powerful, all-powerful all-knowing, ever-present being that's seeking the hearts of his creation to save and sanctify them, which culminates in the greatest example of sacrificial love that's ever been written. Uh, It's inspired just about every film and novel that we know of, whether it was intentional or not, and regardless of whether it's appreciated or not, this book has shaped much of the world around it. Our cultures, our civilizations, um, everything that followed it has been drastically impacted by by the words written in this book. If it were just a man-made creation, it would be the greatest that man offered. Think about it. All those people across all that time from different cultures and environments and everything that they're facing, all coming with a similar perspective and purpose— it's nothing short of miraculous that it is cohesive at all. In fact, it almost seems as if there's a similar spirit that's coming alongside these authors and helping them come to similar conclusions. And that's, that's just the facts. That's just what the Bible is. Tangibly, right in front of us, that's what this is. Add in the fact that mostly, hopefully, all of us in this room believe that this is the word of God that that all-powerful, ever-knowing, all-knowing, ever-present being is God, and we believe that this is his word for us to read and get to know who he is and be in relationship with him. It should be our greatest possession, right? It should be our most precious item that we own. We should love its words. We should appreciate it. We should go for it longingly, hungrily reading through it, and yet we don't. At least I don't. Why? Well, it's boring. No laughter. Okay. (laughs) I felt the judgment. Actually, called the Bible boring. How dare you? Now, that's good. That's that's a good perspective. But I I have been bored of this book. I'll I'll be honest with you. I uh, I was raised in a Baptist church and I went to something called Sunday school. And I don't know where someone or who thought of it was like, hey, you know, it's a good idea. Let's inspire kids to, to hunger after the word or uh, be excited about the relationship with God by giving them more school on Sundays. It was a horrible idea and I hated it. Um, very passionately against that. But I, I've, been spent, I've spent a lot of time being bored of it. There are times where I read through the Bible and there are just points where I'm just like, really? You know, God, I know I committed to reading through this and I know, but this chapter, it's kind of lame, you know? I had those conversations. I was honest with God. Like, come on, dude, spice it up a little bit. Uh, But I I just, uh, it's boring for sure. But, you know, like I said, I, I studied the Bible and I went to school and I started to learn more and more. And there's actually a lot of really interesting things, things that would blow your mind that if I said and quoted to you, you'd probably be like, what? That's not in the Bible. It's there. Um, there's a lot of cool stuff in it. So I've, I've learned to appreciate and, and, and grow in that. And there's still some epic stories that maybe we've come so accustomed to that we forget how awesome they are. But if you think about them again and just with fresh eyes, like, wow, that's actually really cool. So that's an awesome story. Also going along with that, something that I've noticed is that it's super available and accessible. And for some reason in our culture, at least in my mind, there's just this idea that it's not valuable. That the rarer something is, the more important it is, and the more precious it is. But this, because it's everywhere, it's not that great. Like, whatever. Sweet. That's a Bible. I I can see that anytime, anywhere. I mean, I don't know about you guys, but I've I've had those moments where, you know, you're walking into some kind of Christian conference or something, and there's Gideons outside, or going into school or something, and they're handing out these little pocket-sized New Testaments, and they're giving it to people, and I'm like, oh, great. Now, what do I got to do with this? you know i've I've got like six hundred bibles i don't need this one, and that's the Word of God, and that's me, someone that supposedly appreciates it, and I'm still annoyed when I have to deal with it sometimes so there's just this element of of lack of appreciation and and honestly it's kind of sad because the reason it's accessible and available, the reason it's written in language that you can understand, the reason that uh, it's been interpreted and shared with you and why it's everywhere around is because people literally gave their lives to make sure that that happened. How many people boldly said, I want to make sure? I just read a story recently about a man named John, uh, was it Wycliffe Tyndale? I think it was Tyndale. He was, uh, he was, his passion was to translate the Bible into English in England, and and he ended up giving his life for it. Uh, they burned him at the stake because he wanted to translate the Bible, and he did. Uh, and then he, his prayer before he died, it was recorded that his prayer was that the king of England would, you know, have a new heart. And like three years later, the king of England decided, we need an English Bible. So his prayer was answered, but, you know, he gave his life for that. Just an example of, of like all the effort and... The amazing story of how this came to be. Not just the words and the people that wrote it, but how it's been translated and, and given to us. And yet, because of that, we almost don't appreciate it because it's everywhere. It's so easy to find. And I'm, I'm not talking to you guys like, oh, this is your fault. I'm not con- condemning you. I'm telling you that this is something that I feel, that I don't appreciate it all uh, all the time, because it's all, all over the place. But like I said, one of the things that I've found, the more you read it, the more you dive into it, the more you learn about it, the more you appreciate it, the more you grow in seeing how deep it is and how meaningful it is and how it, the closer you grow in your relationship with God, the more this means to you because you understand what Jesus said when it's the bread of life and you you need it. But my, my purpose today isn't actually to convince you to read this. No, you should be doing that already. I don't need to tell you to do that. Today, I, I want to explain that I believe it's important we should have read through this entire thing. All of us. If we have a relationship with God, if we believe in him and we're going to go to heaven someday on our bucket list as Christians, this, this book we should have read cover to cover. At least once. And I'm going to explain why I believe that today. Uh, But before we get into that, let's pray. Hey God, we lift this time up to you. Each and every individual person came here with the express purpose of um, learning and growing and uh, fellowshipping together. Pray that, Spirit, you join us now um, and help us do that. Help us uh, hear from you. Open up our ears and our minds and our hearts. Speak through me. This morning, Um, speak around me if you have to, over me, whatever you got to do, God. Uh, But I pray that we hear you and that we apply into our lives what you have for us today. Um, Thank you for the opportunity again, God. I love you and praise you in Jesus' name, Amen. So, I like science. Uh, I've always been fascinated by it. It's one of my favorite subjects in school. Is just to learn more, and even to this day, I still get hooked on like. Uh, I love that there's a new Discovery Plus, so you can watch all the Discovery Channel shows, and I watch a lot of them because I enjoy them. I enjoy learning more. And one of the things that I find fascinating about science is that it doesn't matter how big you go or how small you go, there's always more. Isn't that crazy? Like, I mean, it makes sense. Okay, we look out at the stars, and we keep looking, and there's more, and there's more, and there's more. You ever seen that uh, video where they talk about this one blank spot of space where they were like, all right, let's shoot a picture of that and see what our telescopes can pick up. And then they found like bunches of galaxies in what appeared to be just a blank spot of sky. And the opposite is true. And I find this extremely fascinating that when they look at something and then they go farther down and look smaller, they keep finding more things, more things that that go down to very a minute level. And, and the more we study, the more we see. And it's super cool. Um, and my example today is, is, is one of those things is that we've learned is that our body's made up of cells, right? And you probably learned this in school, right? And you remember what a cell looks like. You might even remember the diagram. And probably you remember that the mitochondria is the powerhouse of the cell. Right? We all, No one? You don't remember that? Yeah, we all remember that. It's probably not helped you much in life, but you know it. All right? And you know the different a- aspects of a cell, and you probably looked at an egg and be like, oh, that's the nucleus, and that's the nucleoi. And you're like, oh, well, that's really cool. It's really cool to look at and experience and understand. Um, and what's crazy about our bodies— Is that you could take just one cell and look at it, right? And you can learn a lot from it. You can you can see that there's DNA inside the the nucleus and you can kinda get a picture of what this cell is and what it does and, and how it functions and what its purpose is and how each part inside the cell works. And you can learn a lot from that. It can mean a lot to you. It can be important and awesome. But if you back up and see how that cell works with other cells around it and how they interact with each other, you'll learn more. And then if you back up farther and you see the tissue or the organ or whatever it it forms, you'll see more. You'll see its purpose, that those cells work together to produce this thing. And that thing does something for the body. And each part of you is made up of all these different types of cells. And they work together to produce you. Something that you wouldn't see, if you just looked at one cell, you wouldn't quite grasp the full measure of what it does, what its purpose is, and how important it is. You wouldn't quite understand. You'd, you'd see a lot, you'd grab a lot, you'd be like, well, okay, that's really cool. But it wouldn't give you the full picture until you zoom out and you see the whole thing. What it's producing, what it's making, how it functions, and what value it adds, That cell becomes so much more important. It becomes so much more valuable. You understand so much more by seeing the bigger picture. And today I'm going to give you an example of how that works in Scripture. That when we isolate a passage or a verse that we know or like, we can get a lot of value out of it. We can get a lot of... um, uh, value. Like, we, we can take something from that verse or that passage and be like, okay, I learned something from this. It, it's affected my life. It's changed me. It's helped me. It's helped me get to know God a little bit better. That passage is important, and I don't want to take that away from anyone. that's There's value there in each individual word and verse and passage, but you get a bigger picture understanding how that all ties together when you see the whole thing. And so, um, I wanted to use as an example of verse. I'm not going to preach at you with verses and say, this is what the Bible says about reading the whole scripture. But I am going to show you an example of how one verse can mean something all on its own, but can mean even more when you understand what's going on around it and how it ties into the rest of scripture. So we're going to look at Romans eight twenty eight. It's my favorite verse in the Bible. It's the one that's meant the most to me in my life. Uh, and right off the bat, uh, it says this, we know That in all things, God works for the good of those who love him, who have been called according to his purpose. Pretty straightforward. It's a good verse. Probably heard it before. It's been quoted quite a bit. It meant a lot to me growing up. When I went through times in my life where I didn't see how God was working things out for the good, how I didn't see that there was a purpose behind what was going on, how I kept going through day after day feeling like, man, do I even matter? Is there a point to this existence I didn't have a terrible life. I don't have much of an excuse to tell you why I felt that way, but I did. I struggled through every day throughout high school, and I didn't really like it much, and even some of college. But this verse was one of the things that kept me going, because I believed in the Bible, I believed in God, and I knew that what this said was true. That's what I've been taught my whole life, and I started to believe it myself. And I hung on to this. I clung to this as some kind of hope, saying that I don't see it, God. I don't know what good you're talking about. I don't know how it's going to work out but I believe that you're doing something for the good. Somehow, way, you're doing something for the good. So this, va- this verse had value to me. It meant something to me. It helped me get through a lot in life, and it, it really shaped the way I viewed the world around me. I began to just look for the good that God was doing. And I continue to do that to this day, and I've gotten a lot better, a lot better than I did when I was in high school. But that verse in and of itself is inside of a passage, which is inside of a bigger passage, which is inside of a letter, which is inside of a testament, which is inside of the entire Bible. And, and how those things affect it gives us even more meaning. And as I went to school and studied this thing and went to a class that was called Romans, and I started to have my mind blown by the fact that I thought I knew this verse, and I thought I knew what it meant. And it's not that I was wrong, it's that I was missing so much and I'll show you what what I mean. So let's read the whole passage together that that this is found in. We're not going to read the whole chapter, but just just this chunk. Uh, 8.26 through 30. In the same way, the Spirit helps us in our weakness. We do not know what we ought to pray for, but the Spirit himself intercedes for us through wordless groans. And he who searches our hearts knows the mind of the Spirit, because the Spirit intercedes for God's people in accordance with the will of God. And we know that in all things, God works for the good of those who love him, who have been called according to his purpose. For those God foreknew, he also predestined to be conformed to the image of his Son, that he might be the firstborn among many brothers and sisters. And those he predestined, he also called. And those he called, he also justified. And those he justified, he also glorified. So how does this tie into this verse how do, how do, what do we learn more from this Well, we, we hear about the spirit the spirit that is alongside all these people that love God and are called according to his purpose these people have the spirit interceding on their behalf with wordless groans you ever get to that point where you can't quite express what you're feeling you have no idea how to put into words but you just feel it the spirit is on your behalf those of you that are love God are called according to his purpose, those of you that have been called predestined that God foreknew are justified and glorified, those of you that fit into this category have the spirit inside of you interceding on your behalf in accordance with the will of God, so that good that we talked about that god's working all things together for good is the will of God that 's the good, whatever the will of God is, whatever he 's doing it's good, and all those that are living their life loving him and called according to his purpose, they, they experience that good too. And what's cool about that is that we know that the Spirit is telling the Father what those people are feeling and experiencing and thinking and everything that their soul is crying out for and it's in, the Spirit is interceding on their behalf, incorporating that into the will of God. But, Who are these people? He tells us, you know, the ones God foreknew, predestined, that are conformed to his image, the Son, that Jesus would be the firstborn among many brothers and sisters, those that he predestined, he also called. The ones he called, he also justified. The justified, he also glorified. So these people interact with God's goodwill, and all things work together for their good, right? At least, that's what we hear so far. So what is, why them? Why, why does everything work out according to the good for these people? Why do they get included in this? Well, let's read on. 8.31-39, through 39, what then shall we say in response to these things? Paul's writing a letter. This is one of those things that, outside of Scripture, I was able to learn as I studied the Bible, that even stuff that's not in this book also affects it. And the more you learn, the more you understand And Paul wrote this to the Roman church, which he had not been a part of. He's not really interacted with these people. He's just heard about them and wanted to write a letter to them. That's why it's one of his most comprehensive letters, because he doesn't know what they're struggling with or what they're doing. He just wants to write a letter of everything he believes. And because of that, he asks questions that he thinks they're going to respond with. He doesn't have time to listen to their responses and write back and forth because it takes a long time to write. It takes a long time to deliver and read. So he asks the questions for them, expecting these things. And, and in this question, it's called a diatribe argument. He asks himself a question and then responds with questions Christ Jesus, who died more than that, who was raised to life, is at the right hand of God and is also interceding for us. The Spirit's interceding for us, and so is Jesus. Who shall separate us from the love of Christ? Shall trouble or hardship or persecution or famine or nakedness or danger or sword, as it is written, and this is from Psalm 44, for your sake we face death all day long. We are considered as sheep to be slaughtered. No, in all these things we are more than conquerors through him. Who have who loved us. For I am convinced that neither death nor life nor angels nor demons nor thing neither the present nor the future nor powers, neither height, nor depth, nor anything else in all creation will be able to separate us from the love of God that is in Christ Jesus our Lord. Epic passage, right? And the more you learn about Paul, the more you feel the weight of his words and understand that he really knows that nothing will separate you from the love of God, because he's experienced just about everything. But he's talking about these people that are called according to God's purpose. That nothing can stop them. Nothing can stand in their way. The only person that could possibly condemn them is interceding for them, and that's Jesus. Why? Because they love God and have given up their lives, given up their will, given up what they feel that they want to draw their own value from. They've given up everything that is personal to them and decided to live for God. They've li- decided to live according to God's purpose, according to God's will. They've t- decided to give up their own value system and choose to believe that they are valuable just because of what God has done for them and who God says they are. These people that he's quoting Psalm 44 as an example of these people that are dying giving up their lives for the sake of God's will. These people that have given up their life, their freedom and their choice to serve God, to go according to his will, they are the ones that all things work together for good. Because who can stop them? They're with God. God is with them. They love God. God loves them, and nothing will separate them from that. And Paul includes himself in this mix. He says, I'm one of these people. I've given up my life. I've given up my will. I've given up my choice to, to serve you, God. That is my, that, that is his choice. I'm going to serve you, and I'm going to live my life for you. I'm going to give up my will for your will, and I'm going to see that you do whatever it is you want done through me. That's how Paul's living his life. And because of that, he's saying nothing can stop him, and it's all going to work out for the good. Why? Because it's God's will. It's going to happen. He's going to win. He's going to accomplish his purpose because it's God. And everyone who aligns themselves with God and gives up their will for his are joining in with that. Everything's going to work out for the good. Why? Because it's God's will. It's God's good will, and Paul believes in it, and he knows that his life is going—he's going to accomplish his goals. Why? Because he's aligned his goals with God's goals. He's jumped in and said, God, I am here to serve you, and so whatever you want to do with me, guess what? It's a win. Doesn't matter. Doesn't matter what happens to me. Doesn't matter how hard I fail. It's still going to be a win. Why? Because that's part of God's will, God's purpose. He's joining in with what God's doing. So, all things work out together for good for those who love God and are called according to His purpose. How does Paul know this? How does Paul see this? How does he experience that? How does he understand the wordless groans that the Spirit is interceding? He explains that in the next couple chapters 9, 10, and 11, which read indistinct or by themselves could confuse you. They're tough passages to read, particularly 9. If you read it all on your own, you'd be a little confused about this God and how He's loving. But if you read it in totality, you see what the whole passage is representing. You see what God, what Paul is trying to illustrate about God. Then in chapter nine, Paul talks about, continues this theme of how God is predestining things and how he purposes some things to be made into certain types of pottery and other types of pottery. And, and the clay, the people that God is making however he wants, have no right to talk back to God. Well, who's the clay to talk to the potter? And it starts to seem kind of, strange, especially when he starts to talk about how the Jews that he sees, that he loves, he cares about, he preaches to them all the time because he wants them to come to the same realization about Jesus that he has. He goes to them and preaches to them, and they reject him, and he sees the stubbornness and the pride that they have, and he says, God, harden their hearts. God, as he's molding them, designed them for a purpose, and he's hardened their hearts against him. And you think, what? What do you mean, Paul? How— God's good will and he's hardening hearts against him? But as he explains, he goes forward in chapter 10 and 11, explaining how the process of what he's seen out of that, as he's gone to preach to the Jews and said, hey guys, you need to believe in this Jesus. I know you kind of murdered him, but trust me, he's a good guy. You should get to know him and ask for forgiveness. And they don't like that. They decide to reject him, push him away. And those were the good ones. The other ones tried to kill him. And because of that, Paul had to move to someone else. He had to preach to someone else, anyone that would listen. And so he preached to the Gentiles. He becomes the apostle to the Gentiles because the Gentiles were the one that were listening to him. So he'd go and preach to them and the Holy Spirit would come down upon them and, and they would receive the forgiveness. They were to receive the grace and the mercy of Jesus. They would be part of the family of God grafted in, as he explains in chapter thirteen or 11, grafted in branches to the family of God. And Paul understands that Because of that, what he sees, what he feels that God's up to is that out of some of their stubbornness, he would be pushed to preach to the Gentiles rather than if any of them, a few of them would say, oh, that actually sounds interesting. Let me talk to you, Paul. But because they all rejected him, Paul goes to the Gentiles and out of preaching to the Gentiles and the Holy Spirit coming upon them, that some of these Jews moved by their pride or whatever, start to see these Gentiles have a relationship with God. See the Holy Spirit moving through them and they're moved by jealousy. Well, no, 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 I'm supposed to have a relationship with God. How do you have a relationship with God? And moved by that jealousy, they go and talk to Paul or to another one of these disciples and say, how do I have this relationship? And so this is what Paul sees in God's good plan that, that while maybe God is hardening hearts to begin with, it's to lead people, to, to lead apostles like him to the Gentiles and the Gentiles will spur the jealousy stirred up inside the Jewish hearts and minds, those that would be saved, maybe even more of them that would have accepted in the first place. And they come to know Jesus too. They come to accept him as their savior as well. And the Holy Spirit comes upon them. This is how Paul sees this God's good plan working out. He understands that even though some parts of it don't seem very good, like he goes to these Jews and is like, God, why are you hardening their hearts? But he's aligned with God's good plan. He believes in God's good will and he knows that God's up to something and he knows God loves him. is reaching out for him and God is a God that is working all things for good so that he can save as many people as possible. And even if that means hardening hearts to begin with. So, you get this image of Paul and you understand where he's getting the wordless groans and understand the burden that's on his heart that he's hoping that God will rectify. You see how he sees God's good will working out and how everything's working together for good. Not not the way he would want it to, maybe, but the way that he knows that God's up to and he sees that. But what is this God saving people from? What is the problem? And how is it possible to save them at all? Well, to understand that, you have to read the beginning of his letter. He talks about sin and how it's corrupted all of humanity and that everyone is guilty, Jews and Gentiles. That everyone's fallen short of the glory of God and that everyone needs the same solution, which is Jesus. That the perfect life that Jesus lived, he fulfilled the law so that his unwarranted and undeserved death could take all those that believe and give them his righteousness. Where does he get that from? Well, the rest of the New Testament, the Gospels, the the things that he has been hearing from the other disciples, the message that he's been given when Jesus encountered him on the road to Damascus, all of that coalesces into this message that he's giving to the Roman church. And he says to them that to be part of this, to be part of God's people, part of the people that, are, that love God and are called according to his purpose, you just have to have faith. Where does he get that? Well, Jesus himself says it, but he also knows that this ties together with something that he's read before. He grew up reading the scriptures. He grew up as, as a, uh, a student of the law. He read through this Old Testament and knows knows it very well. And he ties together something that maybe a lot of people miss. But back when Abraham was around, when God called Abraham to move and that God was going to make him a father of many nations, Abraham believed. And it was credited to him as righteousness. He was made righteous before God. Why? Because he believed. He didn't have the law. He didn't follow the Ten Commandments. There were no Ten Commandments. He didn't believe in Jesus. Jesus wasn't alive yet. He just believed in God and through his faith he was reckoned righteous and Paul is saying that that's the same same example that we have to this day of faith. That's where salvation comes from. That's where righteousness comes from. It's because God reckons us righteous when we believe in him and align our will according to his. When we give up our lives and our, our choices to God then we join in with him and all things will work together for good because we love him and are called according to his purpose. It's all based on faith. It starts with faith. See how it all fits together? How this message speaks? And there's so much more that we could go. We could look more deeply into Psalm 44 and and the context behind that and you could learn more about Paul's history and what what he experienced through Acts and and see how his story plays out there. You could see more of Abraham's story and understand, and and that's not even including the part that he talks about Adam and seeing the correlation between Adam and Jesus and how one brought sin into the world and one rectified that. All of it fits together. It's this whole story. It's like looking at one verse that means something to us, like looking at one cell. And there's meaning to it. It's valuable but when you see it in the whole context, you get such a bigger picture. And it's a lot easier, let me tell you, it's a lot easier, as I've learned, to see God's ultimate story and how he's the main character and to stop reading the Bible with this idea of like, this verse was written specifically to me. But this verse was written to a lot of people. And it wasn't to explain to them exactly what they needed to hear. It was to explain to everyone who God is and what he was doing. You don't get that from just reading a verse or a passage. You get that by reading the whole thing. You get that by getting the picture of who God is and his whole story, the whole book. So that's why I think it's important that you all read it. Not just the parts that you want to read, not just the parts that you like. Read through the whole thing hear the stories, sit through the boring parts, get through it, and read the whole thing so that you can see the character of God and what he is up to. So that instead of you trying to get God to join in with you, you can start joining in with him. Uh, I had a couple of disclaimers. Uh, if you guys saw their newsletter for this week, I, they foolishly gave me an opportunity to write my own sermon blurb, like an explanation of what my sermon's going up to. And uh, Jolene, I'll give her credit that she was supposed to edit it, uh, but she let it go through. She let it slide. And uh, let's just say, I, any opportunity I get to be arrogant, I take it. So if you want to look back at the newsletter, you'll, you'll see something funny and either laugh or cry. Uh, but in that, I, I wrote a disclaimer that reading the Bible will change your life when I, I say this, like, when you read through this whole thing, it will change your life. That's just my personal guarantee. You can't read it and read through the whole thing and, like, absorb it and it not affect you. Um, but along with that, I, I wrote a few more disclaimers that I think are important uh, as we're sharing. First of all, you don't have to read this entire Bible to understand understand Scripture. As I said before, and I've tried to illustrate this point, I want to make sure you understand that— if you've read scripture and you've, you've absorbed passages and you've been like, man, I, I love this verse, I'm not saying that you've been misunderstanding it the entire time. No, it's meant something to you. It's valuable. It's been used for whatever it's been used for in your life. Like Romans 8.28 was for me. I'm just saying that as you read it and you see the entire picture of what God's got for us and what God's up to, it'll add more value to those passages. So you can still understand Scripture. I mean, you've got to start somewhere anyway. So don't don't be afraid. You can still read Scripture and understand Scripture without having read the whole thing. It just helps. You don't have to read the entire Bible to have a relationship with God. Same kind of concept. You don't have to read through this whole thing to have relationship with God. Again, you've got to start somewhere. It just helps you deepen it and helps you understand what God's up to and helps you get in line more with Him and uh, grow closer to Him in what He has for us and what He's doing. Another thing is, you most likely will not like everything in here. That's a good thing, because you know we're not all in perfect synchronization with who God is. Unfortunately, we're humans. We don't know everything. We don't. Th- we might think that sometimes, but we don't. We don't know everything. We don't see everything. We haven't been everywhere. We don't understand all things. And because of that, we're going to see things a little differently than God at times. There's going to be moments where you're going to read something and you're like, huh, that doesn't sit right with me. Embrace that tension. I don't know about you, but I've never had a relationship where I haven't had some kind of tension in it, as long as it went deeper. If it kept growing deeper, there was going to be something that was going to cause tension. There was going to be something we disagreed on. And every relationship that I've had, the more we embrace that tension and work through it, the closer we got. Same thing with God. Read through the Bible. Embrace the tension. When you come across something, wrestle with it. Talk about it. If you have questions, ask Terry. You got it, Terry. (laughs) He's super uncomfortable right now. Let's avert our gaze. Uh, Embrace that tension. Ask people. Talk about it. Wrestle through it. Pray about it. Deal with it. It's okay. It's okay to not like everything. It's okay to feel that way. Just understand that you're, you're, you're the one that's wrong, okay? Uh, don't arrogantly go, God, I'm right, you're wrong. Because, yeah, you know, I've done that before. It doesn't work out well. And the last thing I'll say is, this is more just a bit of advice, just keep trying. I have tried and failed to read this through a lot. I set out a long time ago when I was actually in college. It took me that long, being raised in the church, I should have done it sooner, but it took me that long to finally decide to sit through and read through the whole thing and I was just reading a chapter at a day, which should have taken me only like three, three and a half years. It took me close to six. Because I didn't read it every day. I got tired. There were times where I was just like, ugh. And I got through certain parts where I was just like, God, this one's boring. I don't want to. And I just went through periods where I just didn't feel like reading. And then a month later, I'd come back and be like, okay, let's pick this back up. I need to start reading this again. That's okay. You got a lot of time. Hopefully, You know, (laughs) take your time if you have to, you know, work through it, pick it up right where you left off. You don't need to sit down and after this, go read through it in all one setting. In fact, I don't even know if I'd recommend that. That's, that's a lot of reading for one day, but do that and then use whatever available resources you have. I, I say it a lot, but the Bible project's awesome. If you're struggling to see a certain scripture and how it's fitting into its own book, Go on The Bible Project and look at some of their videos. They kind of outline the whole idea of each book and it gives you a better understanding of each passage. Uh, I use that all the time. And work with each other. Read with somebody else. Don't do it just on your own. Say, hey, you want to read through this book with me? And that'll hold you accountable. It helps. But keep trying. Don't stop. Let's move towards communion. If there's a... One thing that ties together all of Scripture, it's what Jesus did for us on the cross. And we remember that each week, and maybe you don't quite grasp the significance, but just another example of how the more you study Scripture, the more you see it, you see how these things tie together. How um, blood is the symbol of atonement all throughout the Old Testament based on their, their fleeing, the... In the desert they flee they fled egypt and they were set free because of the last plague which to be saved from the last plague which would have killed the firstborn son but instead because of the blood their firstborn sons weren't killed they put the blood on the doorpost and they were able to leave egypt after that which is kind of a symbolism of the blood that jesus sacrificed god's firstborn son Setting free everyone who believes in Him. You see how those things tie together, and blood is always shown as a symbol of sacrifice and atonement. And the bread of life, which is given to them every day, and as they walk through the desert, they get manna. And Jesus Himself says that uh, He is the bread of life, and we equate His word to the bread of life, and we need it, it sustains us. These themes that crop up over the entire scripture are met on the last night that Jesus says, hey, I'm about to die for you. This is my blood. This is my body. So it means so much more than just Jesus. Like, if that's a lot right there. But there's even more. There's a whole story that's been set up of God trying to redeem his people, and it culminates in this. On the last night, he broke the bread and passed it amongst his disciples and said, take and eat. Then he passed the cup, said to them, "This is this is my blood, which I will shed for you. Take and drink." God, uh, thank you. Thank you for your word. Thank you for everyone that you've called to make it possible. The people that wrote it, the people that are stars in it, the story you laid out for us and the people that came along after that kept it going, kept sharing it, translating it, dispersing it, living it out. Everyone in our lives personally that has introduced us to this story, introduced us to you thank you for it. I pray that we don't take it lightly, that you can help inspire us to appreciate and love your word, to live by it, to consume it, to appreciate it, to value it. Pray that you help us live it out, that we don't just become hearers of the words, but also doers that we can be the next group of people that you've called according to your purpose to share your word and inspire the next generation. Help us do our part in this awesome story that you're doing. Thank you for working everything out for the good and that we can trust that and know that. And thank you for your son. We love you and praise you in Jesus' name. Amen. Thanks for checking out this message from Real Life. You can find out more about us by going to rlcpullman.com or by following us on Facebook or YouTube. Until next time, have a great week.